all of a sudden people began to give anaesthetics. They'd give one or two a year, some of them, and one or two a month, others. And so it was a sort of... Uh, Cottage uh, industry almost. Well, not, not even that. <laughs> That's flattering. <laughs> How did anaesthesia in Australia progress from not even being a cottage industry to the highly skilled medical specialty that it is today? Well, that's what I hope to explore in this episode of the Australian Anaesthesia Podcast, where we talk about all things relevant to anaesthesia in Australia. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Dr. Susie Nu from the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, otherwise known as the ASA. This is part two of a conversation that I had with past president, Dr. Donald Maxwell, where we dive into his leadership journey and some major changes in anaesthesia practice in Australia. One example is when private hospitals started providing anaesthesia machines in the hospital. Yes, in Don's early career, he had to carry an anaesthetic machine and all the medications from hospital to hospital. Can you imagine that? There's quite a few more things that we discussed, so rather than hearing them from me, let's get into it. So, Don, we've chatted about your experience as a clinician, as a specialist anaesthetist. I wanted to now move on to your experience with the ASA. Well, I joined the ASA in 1958, I think it was. I was then a, a registrar at St Vincent's Hospital. In Sydney. In Sydney, yes, and I didn't know much about it at that stage, and it was just the thing to do, and the society had meetings that I wanted to go to, and all the important people were part of it. If you were going to be an anaesthetist, you had to be a member of the ASA, and in those days, everybody was. I know you best as being a past president. You were president from 1982 to 1984, but there's a, almost 20 years in there. Yes. So what was your path to presidency like? How did you go from being a member, joining as a registrar, to becoming president? I became a sector of the New South Wales section of the ASA in 64, I think. Uh, and then I stayed there for a few years. And then I spent a bit of time for the College of Anaesthetists, then called the Faculty of Anaesthetists. And I was on the state committee of the faculty and became state chairman of the faculty. And then I finished there. And I came back to the ASA as state chairman of the ASA. So from state chairman, I then progressed to become part of the federal council of the ASA. And I mm-hmm. became president of the ASA in 1982, 1982 to 84. And mm-hmm. then I was past president and then carried on. And then I joined Halmar, the history of anesthesia group. And then I, I retired and I became chairman of the retired anesthetist group. And then I retired generally from that. I retired from that only this year, actually. Yes, only recently. So I've been part of the ASA for 65 years, actually, been a member. What are some of your highlights from that time? The ASA, in when I began with it, was a relatively small group of people. The ASA began in 1934 and then had about 40 members, most of whom were general practitioners. And the ASA... As part of its constitution, because nobody much gave anaesthetics in those days, they're they're all general practitioners. Ether was discovered, and all of a sudden, the you know, very early days, all of a sudden, people began to give anaesthetics. They'd give one or two a, a, a year, some of them, and one or two a month, others. And oh, gosh, 
And so it was a sort of... Uh, cottage industry uh, almost. Well, not, not even that. <laughs> That's flattering. <laughs> I think anaesthetists were very inexperienced. Anyhow, in 1934, a group of about 40 of them throughout Australia came to Adelaide. There was no AMA even at that stage. It was a BMA. No, that's right, the British Medical Association. And there was a section of anaesthesia of the BMA. The AMA came later. Mm. That section of anaesthesia decided to form a society of anaesthesia. And the purposes of that were to advance the standards of anaesthesia, to teach anaesthesia, to look Mm. after and encourage anaesthetists and there are other purposes for the society too. But it was a group of people with an idea that you'd advance anaesthesia. And mm. of all that 40 people, I think there are only about four, three or four or five who earned their living giving anaesthetics. So specialist anaesthesia very hardly existed. Yes. That was 1934. The thing that advanced anaesthesia as much as anything through the world, not only Australia, were the wars. In war, mm. you got lots of anaesthetics, a lot of trauma, broken bones and injuries. and So anaesthesia became something that people had to do. Every doctor would be involved in the war, would be involved mm. in giving anaesthetics. But there were a group of them who concentrated on anaesthesia and became specialists. And people began to form little groups. Like private practice groups? In private practice groups, yes. Yeah, yeah. And one of the first of those was a group that I later joined in Sydney. There were similar groups in Melbourne and other parts of Mm -hmm. Australia. Mm -hmm. But this group was founded by three people, Harry Daly, Jim McCulloch and Stuart Marshall, all of whom became presidents of the ASA eventually. Harry Daly was one of the founders of the ASA. Exactly. Our museum is named after him. Correct, it is. They formed a group. They had all been wartime anaesthetists in the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And they got together and they formed a group. As I say, there were similar groups in Melbourne in particular. But that group was initially called Shanaway, named after Harry Daly's hometown in Ireland, where his family had come from. Eventually, it changed its name and became Gas. <laughs> Clever. General Anesthetic Services, the gas company. <laughs> well, the first highlight in my time with the ASA was to join this group. Eventually, by the time I joined it, there were about six or eight members. There were, there were eight, I think, and six of those eight were at one time or other presidents of the ASA. Incredible. Uh, yeah, it was an amazing group. Mm. Uh, and it mm. was expected if you joined the group that you would participate in the development of anesthesia. I was invited to mm. join that group when I came back from England and uh, it was a great honour and uh, it exposed me to uh, all these wonderful people and mm-hmm. that was a highlight. Once I was part of that for a little while and I then became Secretary of the ASA, New South Wales as part of the ASA. Mm-hmm. Anesthesia was fairly primitive. The, I could see that there were a lot of things wrong, in particularly in private anaesthetics. Anesthesia had to supply their own anaesthetic agents. They had to have their own anaesthetic machine in a private hospital. That's right. They carried them around from hospital to hospital. They would have them in the back of the car, carting this machine around (sighs) that you'd have to lift out of the car and another bag Mm. with all your drugs in it, and you'd go and you'd give your anaesthetic. I 
after three or four years as secretary, drew up a document on minimal standards and anaesthetic to try to persuade private hospitals that they should provide these things. There was a Minister of Health in New South Wales at the time who'd formed a group called the Patient Care Committee, and Brian Dwyer was a member of that, and he saw this document that I produced and he put it forward to the Patient Care Committee, which was developed by the minister, and they adopted it as policy. Great. I thought that was a good thing that they did it, but mm. what I had never occurred to me was that this had legal significance. If hospitals didn't have these facilities and the Minister for Health and his department say these are the minimal standards, they were legally liable and they suddenly realised that. So all of a sudden, within a year or two, private hospitals bought anaesthetic machines, they provided drugs, they provided all sorts of equipment and they conformed. Why do they conform? Because, wow. because they'd be in trouble if they didn't. Oh, my goodness. So you changed the landscape of giving anaesthetics in private hospitals. It changed the life. Later on, the College of of Anaesthetists adopted these standards too and produced standard documents, which you'd be well aware of. And these, of course, do have legal significance as well. And these raised the standards of anaesthesia and changed the face of it. Wow. That's an incredible achievement, Don. Well done. I didn't think of it as much at the time. It seemed uh, like a... Just like a good thing to do. But it turned out... (laughs) Often how these things start, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) Later on then, the society, it needed status. Remember that the constitution of the OSA said that anybody who was a medical graduate who had an interest in anaesthesia could become a member of the society. And that was for very good reasons. They're nearly Mm. all general practitioners anyhow. But Mm, later on, the number of... People with specialist qualifications and proper training began to increase. And there was some competition between the two groups, the general practitioners and the specialist groups, at various levels for complicated reasons that I can't explain. It takes too long. Anyhow, I proposed at a meeting, by now I think I was state chairman, it was maybe in the 60s now, can't remember exactly, Mm -hmm. that the constitution of the ASA be changed so that to be a full member of the ASA, you had to have a specialist qualification. That wasn't an easy thing to get through because I proposed that we grandfather the non-specialists so that they could Mm -hmm. remain as full voting members and Mm -hmm. that got them on side and they all voted for it too. The society became a specialist society, but at the same time, general practitioners, people with a specialist interest in anaesthesia could still join the society as associates, Mm. and that happened. That improved the the status of the society, particularly in the eyes of the college, which was now looking to dominate, in some respects, the anaesthetic world. The other thing was that I participated, I was one of the prime movers in the ASA acquiring its own headquarters. Mm. Under Ben Barry as the secretary of the ASA, he became mm-hmm. secretary of the ASA, I can't remember, in the 60s, I think, sometime. He felt that we should have a full secretariat up till this period of time. Now, there's the first 30 or 40 years of the society. The secretary mm. of the society... Was an anaesthetist. ...operated out of his own office. That's where the ASA operated. And he'd have all these documents that, in a briefcase, and they were the records of the society. 
pretty primitive. Ben mm. Barry recommended, and it was agreed, that there be a secretariat. And the first secretary, I'm talking about an employed secretary, mm. was appointed. It was a girl called Sue Butterworth, who was absolutely fantastic. And the group that I belonged to volunteered premises. They could use part of their premises for an office for the society. That was the first office. Oh, that worked for a wow. while. That worked for a while. But eventually the work of the society expanded. Yes. They needed their own premises. So we got those. Uh, bought a building in Paddington in Sydney, and that became the Secretariat. Ah, okay. And subsequently it expanded more and more, and we moved, and eventually now we're got beautiful palace in North Sydney. <laughs> because I didn't realise we started in Paddington because I, I know there was Edgecliff and then there was North Sydney and now we're in Narrenburn. So it's, it's only been four properties then of the ASA. Yeah, and we did pretty well on a real estate basis too because every time we sold, we found we made a bit of a profit on it. We yeah. more and more elaborate buildings and offices and now we're in a, quite a lovely spot. And that became the home too to the museum. Exactly. So so they were some of the highlights. I was president at the time that we moved from North Sydney to Narrenburn, so was involved with signing all the documents. All the papers, so those yeah. significant <laughs> transactions. It feels good, occurred. doesn't it? <laughs> well, it's a bit daunting, to be honest. I'd never handled a multi-million dollar transaction before. Yeah. Uh, 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 but I want to ask, do you recall from your time as president, what were the burning medico-political issues of the day? The one other big thing that happened in my time was the uh, relative value scheme. The concept for the relative value scheme was brought to Australia by Brian Pollard, and he brought it after a visit to the US. The US at that time was operating a, a, a relative value scheme in which anaesthetics were given a unit value based on time and difficulty. And that was a concept that and originally was developed in San Francisco and later adopted by Anesis right through the, the States. Brian Pollard saw it in one of his overseas visits and brought the concept back to Australia for consideration. It didn't ever really go anywhere, though, not much anyhow, until in New South Wales, the state government under Neville Rann, who was the premier at the time, abolished the honorary system and pay all visiting doctors uh, at the hospital. What was the honorary system? How did that work? The public hospital was staffed up to this time, up to Rand's time, by doctors who worked for nothing. Uh, they donated their time. Right. When I first started uh, at St Vincent's and for a long time afterwards, the doctors, all of them, the surgeons, anaesthetists, physicians, all came along and worked for nothing. And they So you earned your income in private practice? They earned their income in private practice. So you couldn't be a full-time public specialist like you can now because you wouldn't have earned any income? Well, not initially. And then the full-time directors of departments were appointed around about the, I suppose, the in the 50s. There'd be a director of anaesthesia. I mentioned Brian Dwyer and there were similar people in Melbourne and all anaesthetists initially. Later on, these people had a staff. They, they, they were supported by an honorary staff. I'm talking about the anaesthetic departments now. The anaesthetic department would have a, had a director and he had honorary anaesthetists. The honorary anaesthetists came along 
mainly in the afternoons, not in the mornings. In the mornings, the anaesthetics were given by the director, salaried, and by the registrars. In the mornings, the honorary anaesthetists earned their livings in private practice in my time. So the directors and the registrars were salaried? They were salaried and they gave the anaesthetics the times I mentioned. I see. Which was not satisfactory, really. Remember, there weren't many specialist anaesthetists about. Weren't many at all. The teaching hospitals had them. The suburban hospitals might have one or none. Again, the anaesthetics would be given by the residents who were there who were very inexperienced or by nobody. They would go to other hospitals if they required surgery. So it was just not satisfactory. I'd imagine some of those suburban hospitals would have obstetric services. So were the anaesthetists involved in delivering? There were public patients and what they called intermediate patients. They were private patients, but they're called intermediate patients in the sense that they didn't have private rooms necessarily. That was the term. The public patients were treated free and the others paid their doctors. The private patients could choose their doctors. So they could say, I want Dr. Smith to be my obstetrician or my surgeon. Otherwise, they just went into a list and it might be anybody who was their surgeon. People wanted to choose their doctors. And that was the main reason they chose private patients. For the other patients, they were all treated, and mainly treated quite well, for nothing. It was very, yes, unsatisfactory, really, particularly when private practice began to develop outside separate private hospitals, because sometimes the the doctor concerned, the honorary, as he was called, would say, look, I'm busy today, I can't come this afternoon or this morning. Mm. What would happen? They just weren't looked after. They uh, didn't have their surgery. So the government wanted to introduce a staff arrangement where they had staff specialists and VMOs, visiting medical officers, and that's what Neville Rand did. I see. Now, that caused all sorts of upset. People don't like, in the medical community, people don't like change for all sorts of reasons. But eventually it came in, and the doctors were paid at a particular rate. And that rate was determined, it went to arbitration. It went to the arbitration court, and they determined that all specialists were paid at the same rate, and the specialist rate was determined by this court. So it was a statutory decision. Anistus found that coming onto their lists at the public hospital from earning nothing, all of a sudden they were being paid, and sometimes being paid incredibly well because the arbitration court had determined their rate according to what they were worth on an hourly basis. There were some people who gave all the, a lot of their time, half their time, for instance, to a public hospital, and all of a sudden for half their time was being paid. Wow. What a windfall for them, yes. And well. So <laughs> that changed things. In the case of Anistus, I was happened to be the, yes, I was the past president at the time. And I took note of this, and I saw the relative value scale, and I saw the rate that was charged, And I was able to persuade the society and the federal executive and eventually later on other people took over and people like Greg Deacon and others did the major work with government. But we were able to establish the relative value scheme as a basis for fee charging for anaesthetists. And because we had a 
a standard that was set by government in a shrine. And so we were able to transfer that and have an amount that would be acceptable. Because before that, would private anaesthetists have just made up their own fee? Yes, they did. And had no way of knowing? I'm not quite sure how they judged it. I remember when I started in practice, i say, what should I charge for this appendix that I'm looking after? And I'd be told that was the rate. That How that it's similar, I don't know. But it, it worked all right, but it, it really made no sense in most cases. The other thing was that because most anaesthetics were simple and the common anaesthetics, like if, say, for tonsillectomy, if it was a common operation at the time, or for a, uh, a DNC, they were charged at a relatively high rate compared with, say, neurosurgery or cardiac surgery. People could never afford the sort of thing. To charge what a, a brain operation was worth was something that a patient couldn't afford compared with, say, a tonsillectomy. The relative value scheme didn't take finance into consideration at all. It simply applied units to these things. So there was a whole change in values. Once the unit value was determined, of course, it meant that fees for minor operations uh, attracted a far lower fee than a fee for a major operation. So it was quite a change of thinking. Yes, I can see that. That was a major change in uh, anaesthetic practice and a major medico-political change. Yes, incredible. Well, I've just been so impressed. You have seen some incredible changes in the practice of clinical anaesthesia and in the medico-political aspects and leadership of the ASA. Thank you very much for your time this morning. It's been wonderful. Well, thank you, Susie. I hope I haven't wandered too far in various things. But the... No, you've been wonderful. It's been wonderful having a deep dive. Thank you. It's been fun talking to you. Well, I hope you enjoyed learning about anaesthesia practice in Australia and how it has changed. I am especially grateful to Don and the advocacy of the ASA for some of those changes, like carting your anaesthesia machine around. And I'm also grateful that we now have the Relative Value Guide. We at the ASA are always tweaking it and always looking to improve it, but geez, we really have come a long way from plucking out numbers in terms of how we should be charging for our services. To me, these have been some great examples of advocacy undertaken by the ASA. So with that, I hope that you are enjoying this time of year wherever you happen to be and are looking forward to a 2024 full of the things you wish to achieve. If you are an anaesthetist practicing in Australia, you can be rest assured that the ASA will be here to represent and support you. I want to say a big thank you to some of our regular listeners Thank you for the positive comments, Beck, Andrew, Tomoko, Ahmed, Annie, Beth, Margaret, so many more people I could name. Please do keep the feedback coming in. I love receiving it. The best way to contact me is podcast at asa.org.au. In terms of the podcast, I have some very exciting episodes already in the pipeline for 2024, which I can't wait to share with you. Until then, Merry Christmas, however you celebrate it. Happy Hanukkah, Happy New Year, and I hope that you are staying safe and well out there. Thank you for listening to the Australian Anesthesia Podcast, which can be found on all the major podcast hosting platforms, as well as YouTube. 
This podcast is produced by the Australian Society of Anaesthetists and hosted by Dr. Susie New with music created by Dr. Mark Seuss. The ASA was formed in 1934, and our vision is for every anaesthetist in Australia to be at their best, providing the highest quality anaesthesia and perioperative care through excellent technical and non-technical skills. We also hope that this means that you are functioning at your best when you're away from work. In this podcast, we have conversations that seek to inform, challenge, and inspire you to keep you performing at your best. Members of the ASA can access full versions of all episodes by logging into the ASA website at asa.org.au. If you are listening on your favorite podcast app, then make sure you look at the episode notes for the direct link to the podcast on the ASA website. Also, feel free to follow or subscribe so that you can receive the latest episodes as we do publish regularly. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to email us on podcast at asa.org.au. Thank you for your time and we hope you enjoyed listening.